Welcome back to the program. Since the dawn of the age of nuclear weapons, we have imagined that complex systems are involved in the use of those weapons. Those of us that grew up during the Cold War are all too familiar with the nuclear football that follows the president, launch codes, the hotline, failsafe, and even the eccentricities of Colonel Jack Ripper. All have seemingly kept us safe. Today, the Cold War is over. U.S. and Russian nuclear stockpiles have gone from over 60,000 weapons to less than five. It all sounds pretty good. But today, as we worry about nuclear proliferation, about weapons in the hands of terrorists, it brings into bold relief the idea that these weapons are among the most complex machines ever built by man. As such, they can fail, accidents can happen, and weapons on hair-trigger alert are subject to technical failure. Given this, is it pure dumb luck that we've not had an accident involving these nuclear weapons? In fact, we have had such accidents, perhaps over 1,200 of them, the worst of which happened in Damascus, Arkansas, 33 years ago this week. Now, investigative journalist Eric Schlosser, the author of Fast Food Nation and Reefer Madness, takes us inside our system of command and control. His new book is entitled Command and Control, Nuclear Weapons, The Damascus Accident, and the Illusion of Safety. It's just out from Penguin. It is my pleasure to welcome Eric Schlosser back to this program. Eric, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you here, Eric. It is a remarkable thing that, that given the uh, some of the accidents that we'll talk about, given the complexity of these weapons, and given the fact, as you point out, there is this internal conflict between the need for readiness of these weapons and safety, that, in fact, something more disastrous hasn't happened. It's extraordinary. And, you know, you mentioned the complexity of the weapons. You then add on the complexity of the weapon system, either the missile or the bomber that's carrying the weapon. And then, just to further complicate things, the complexity of the communications system uh, that has to give the orders to those weapons and human beings that are involved at every stage of it. Um, We've come close. We've come perilously close to having uh, detonations of our own weapons on American soil. I don't mean during tests. And I, I credit you know, the skill of our weapons designers, an enormous amount of courage and hard work by the military who's maintained and deployed these weapons. But there's also been a fair amount of luck that's prevented a, a real catastrophe. To what extent have those people that have been charged with handling and dealing with these weapons all these years, to what extent are they aware of and or hypersensitive to the kind of dangers we're talking about? Because certainly when we look at it in the Cold War context, it seems almost as if they were taken for granted at a certain point. You know, one of the problems, and it's something I write about in the book, or is the danger of too much secrecy. Uh, there was such intense secrecy about nuclear weapons during the Cold War, and in some instances for good reason, but there was even compartmentalized secrecy within the government. So, the people who were designing the nuclear weapons often didn't know exactly how they were being handled and used in the field. And the people who were using them, the Air Force officers or enlisted men or people loading the weapons on and off of airplanes, they often didn't know some of the real safety questions and risks with the weapons. So I think particularly among the military personnel, there was this belief that these weapons could never detonate accidentally. Uh, And in reality, uh, we now know that many of the weapons that we were using during the Cold War 
had vulnerabilities that weren't recognized until many years later and actually could have detonated in certain situations, uh, particularly in what they call abnormal environments, which would be a fire, uh, an explosion, uh, a lightning strike, stray electricity entering the weapon from some source. Those things could have detonated one of our bombs or warheads. And of course, as computer technology has evolved, as the systems themselves, the underlying systems that control all of this, has become infinitely more complex in in these 50, 60 years, that's added another measure of danger and risk to the equation. There's no question. And, um, you know, it's hard to think of a computer software that you've ever used that's operated flawlessly and perfectly. And yet the margin of error with nuclear weapons is just so thin as to be beyond belief. And I'd love to say that this was just a historical problem. You know, in, in 1978, um, uh, Zbigniew Brzezinski, Carter's national security advisor, was woken up in the middle of the night and told the United States was under attack by Soviet missiles. Uh, he got a call back from his military advisor saying it wasn't hundreds of missiles, it was more than a thousand missiles were on their way. And Brzezinski got ready to call Carter to discuss how to retaliate. And he didn't wake up his wife, who was sleeping beside him, because he didn't want her to be awake when Washington, D.C. was destroyed. Now, it turned out there was a computer chip that was defective in an already obsolete computer at NORAD uh, headquarters that had sent out this false alarm. And nothing happened, and you know it was all handled properly. But that sort of complicating thing hasn't gone away. Uh, Just three years ago, at F.E. Warren Air Force Base in Wyoming, 50 of our intercontinental ballistic missiles, an entire squadron of missiles, suddenly lost communication with our launch control, with the launch control centers at the base. And for the next hour, the lost control centers at the base tried to regain communication with the missiles. And eventually they did, but it was found that it was a, a chip improperly installed in a processor that had gone out. Uh, At the time, the Air Force denied there was any possibility that someone had hacked into our nuclear command and control system. Uh, But later, high-level officers admitted that that incident made them concerned about the possibility of someone hacking into our nuclear command and control system. And the Defense Science Board issued a report this year saying that the vulnerability of our nuclear command and control system to hacking has never been fully assessed. Uh, During Senate hearings this spring, the head of the United States Strategic Command, who has basically responsibility for our nuclear weapons, he said he felt confident that the system couldn't be hacked, but that, quote, we don't know what we don't know. (laughs) So as long as these weapons exist, um, there is the possibility of an accident, and this would just be a catastrophe beyond description. We also don't know the extent to which Chinese or Russian systems could be hacked. In the same Senate hearing, the head of strategic command was asked, is it possible that someone would hack into the Russian or the Chinese nuclear command and control system and launch one of their missiles? And the general said, Senator, I don't know. Now, these are very remote possibilities. And, you know, I'm not saying that someone could do it tomorrow afternoon at 3. 
but the chance that someone might be able to do it is concerning. And particularly, you know, when you look at what's just happened with Snowden and the revelations from the NSA, and the NSA is the most top-secret intelligence agency that we have, and their programs were among the most top-secret programs that the United States had. And the ability of a relatively low-level private contractor to get information on those programs is, is quite astonishing. And it raises questions and should raise concerns about someone within our nuclear command and control system uh, being able to tamper with the software, being able to mess around with it. Now, again, I'm not saying this is going to happen, and in a lot of ways, it sounds like the plot of a Hollywood film, a Hollywood thriller, but the fact that the Defense Science Board is concerned about it, the fact that the uh, head of the United States Strategic Command can't rule out the possibility should give all of us pause. It reminds us all of the, the doomsday machine in Dr. Strangelove. Well, for the listeners who, aren't, who don't remember, there was a doomsday machine in the Soviet Union and Dr. Strangelove that if we were to attack them, no matter what, it would launch missiles at us. And uh, at the end, you know, there's, there's all this anger about, well, why didn't you tell us about it? And uh, the movie ends with the apocalypse. And it turned out, in reality, the Soviet Union had a technological system very similar to that. It was nicknamed, it was, the formal name was the perimeter system, but the nickname was the dead hand. And the Soviets were very worried that the United States might attack its leadership bunkers and destroy them. And by doing that, they wouldn't be able to retaliate against us in a nuclear war. So they created the perimeter system. And the perimeter system, once it detected nuclear weapons detonating on Russian soil was going to automatically launch missiles at the United States uh, once this system was turned on. The only difference between the doomsday machine in Strangelove and the perimeter machine that actually was built is that the perimeter machine had to be turned on in order for it to work. Now, the thing that is quite unnerving in retrospect is we had all kinds of theories of limited nuclear war in the United States, that somehow we would launch a couple of weapons at the Soviet Union, but not go out and have an all-out nuclear war, and there'd be negotiations, and maybe we could manage a nuclear war. Uh, if the perimeter system had been, put on, had been turned on, that would have been impossible. And just like in Strangelove, we didn't know that such an automatic missile launching system existed until after the end of the Cold War. And this is something I write about right. uh, a little bit in the book. Um, these systems, once you get computers, once you get automated response, are very dangerous and destabilizing. Has there ever been, within the confines of the Pentagon or the White House, a top-to-bottom review of many of the kinds of things we're talking about, a kind of actuarial analysis of what the risks are? One of the stories, so the central narrative of my book is a minute-by-minute -minute retelling of this one accident in Damascus, Arkansas. But there's another narrative in the book, and you know the hero, in many ways, of that narrative is an engineer named Robert Purifoy, who eventually was vice president of the Sandia National Laboratory, one of our uh, weapons labs. 
And he became concerned in the late 1960s that some of our nuclear weapons were vulnerable to detonating accidentally and that they needed new safety devices put into these weapons. And he started a bureaucratic battle to get safety devices installed in our nuclear weapons that lasted almost two decades. And it's sort of amazing in retrospect. You'd think it would be a no-brainer. Well, my gosh, the weapons are dangerous. Let's put those devices in there. But there were very complex issues and bureaucratic resistance and military resistance to doing this. And uh, in 1990, the Congress appointed a special panel on nuclear weapons safety headed by three of our most illustrious physicists. They investigated these safety issues. They found that everything that Robert Purifoy had been saying was true, and they began to remove from our nuclear weapon stockpile those weapons that were at greater risk of accidental detonation. So there was this sort of accounting of our weapons that was done in 1990-1991, but it revealed that we had had deployed in the United States and throughout the world uh, nuclear weapons that were at risk of detonating accidentally. So today, the weapons, the bombs, are much safer than they were 20 years ago, thanks in large part to this one engineer, Bob Purifoy, but when you then mate those weapons to weapon systems and communication systems, you know, there still is the potential for serious accidents. As you say, we're much better at creating complex technology than we are at controlling it. Absolutely. And, you know, you see that in other technological systems. Uh, the Fukushima uh, nuclear uh, reactor accident happened years ago. They're still not sure what's going on in the reactors. They still aren't sure what's going on in the tanks that are storing uh, the radioactive water and waste. Uh, again and again, you see with these complex technological systems, they work perfectly until they don't. And once there's a problem, it's very, very difficult to figure out what's going on and how to handle it. In the nuclear weapons accident that I write about in Demar Damascus, Arkansas, they didn't know what was going on in the silo after this fuel leak. They didn't know how to handle it uh, at Chernobyl. That Chernobyl nuclear power plant had operated flawlessly for thousands of hours, and then it didn't, and they just didn't know how to cope with it. Same was true at Three Mile Island. So, you know, one of the themes of my book is that um, we need to be more humble. We need to have more humility about these technological systems that we create you can count on the fact that at some point they're going to fail, but you want to have technologies that when they fail, they don't take thousands or tens of thousands of people along with them. The Damascus incident is even more complicated in that it wasn't so much a systems failure as it was a wrench that fell down and pierced the skin and, and caused the rocket fuel to leak, something that if you did it, as you talk about, 50 times in a row, probably wouldn't happen again. You know, but but it ultimately was a systems failure in the sense that this workman dropped this tool that fell down the silo, bounced, hit the missile, pierced the missile, caused a fuel leak. And I spoke to other people who were familiar with the weapon system and had worked on Titan II missiles, that type of missile, for many years. They said you could drop that tool a thousand times trying to hit the missile, and you couldn't have hit the missile. So on the one hand, it was human error. It was a fluke accident. On the other hand, the possibility 
of a tool piercing the weapon and then having the weapon essentially out of control, that's poor design of the system. Um, you want technologies that fail safe. And, you know, fail safe was a phrase from the, from the Cold War, uh, but it's also an industrial engineering uh, phrase. Things can fail in one of two ways. They can fail deadly or they can fail safe. And you want, uh, you want your technology, if something goes wrong, it's less dangerous, not more dangerous. From a political perspective, did the, the anti-nuclear, the nuclear freeze movement of the 1970s have any influence in anyone politically addressing any of these issues? I think it was one of the most uh, influential mass movements in the United States that, uh, that operated at a very, in a very few years. Uh, Ronald Reagan has now been acknowledged and appreciated as a great opponent of nuclear weapons, who at the end of his administration was calling for the abolition of all nuclear weapons. Now, he had been a real cold warrior. There, ha there had been elements of his opposition to his nuclear weapon throughout his career, but one of the things that hasn't been given enough credit is the fact that the nuclear freeze movement arose fairly quickly, gained nationwide influence and I think had a big impact on Nancy Reagan, her thinking about nuclear weapons, her desire for her husband not to be as unpopular as he was becoming. And I think that, you know, the anti-nuclear movement, there was a film called The Day After mm -hmm. that was part of that movement that Ronald Reagan watched at the White House and it scared the hell out of him. Uh, we forget that the largest political demonstration in the history of the United States was an anti-nuclear weapon demonstration that occurred in Central Park, three-quarters of a million people, close to a million people, some people think, marched against nuclear weapons. So it did have an, have an impact. What, what concerns me today is there's a, form, there's a kind of historical amnesia that settled over the United States. You know, 30 years ago, there was a profound awareness of nuclear weapons and the threat they posed. Uh, today, half the population of the United States either was not yet born when the Soviet Union vanished, uh, or were small children. So there's this thought that, well, the Cold War ended, the Soviet Union's gone, this problem has been solved, and in reality, there are still thousands of nuclear weapons ready to be used at a moment's notice. And, you know, I argue towards the end of the book, every one of those weapons is a potential accident waiting to happen or a potential act of mass murder. And we need to... Uh, really, the public needs to be aware of these issues. So much of this information was classified and deliberately kept away from the public. Almost all of my book is based on documents obtained through the Freedom of Information Act or interviews with people who handled nuclear weapons or were responsible for nuclear weapons. I think this is very important information for the public to have. As dramatic as it is with respect to talking about this, regarding the Cold War and what the U.S. has done, the accidents here and, and the Soviets. Now we're looking at situations where these nuclear weapons in India and Pakistan are, are in situations that are even potentially more dangerous in terms of the way they're being handled. Well, you know, I'm critical of the United States government in the book, but at the same time, we invented this technology, we perfected, and I do feel confident that our safety mechanisms and protocols are the best in the world. 
And yet if we've come this close on a number of occasions to having our own weapons detonate on our own soil, uh, think about other countries that are now seeking to gain nuclear weapons. At the end of the book, I, I look at the rate of industrial accidents in other countries as a rough measure of their ability to manage complex technological systems. And uh, I'm concerned about Pakistan. I'm concerned about India. Uh, it would be disastrous, I think, for Iran to get a nuclear weapon. Uh, you don't want this highly dangerous technology being spread throughout the world. Uh, the fewer weapons, the better, and particularly the fewer hands that control them, the better. This Damascus accident is the centerpiece of, of command and control, but one of the things you talk about is that according to a report that was done again at Sandia Labs, there were there have been almost 1,200 of these potential accidents. You know, there's no way to know how many there really were. Uh, the, the Pentagon's official list of broken arrows, which is what they consider uh, nuclear weapons accidents that could threaten the public, there's 32 accidents on that list. But when you look carefully at that list, some of those accidents, there was no chance of a of a detonation because the nuclear core wasn't in the weapon, the weapon wasn't fully assembled. So on that list there are plane crashes that were spectacular that you know, involved a nuclear weapon but there was no chance of a detonation. When you look more closely at it, and this document that I got from Sandia was very helpful as was the many interviews, as were the very many interviews I did with weapons designers, there were incidents and accidents that were much less dramatic than a plane crash that had a much greater risk of an accidental detonation. Uh, hydrogen bombs or atomic weapons were improperly offloaded from aircraft in different situations uh, in which the, the weapon was armed accidentally. And the, the, crew, you know, the, the, the ground crew didn't realize they were arming the weapon. Uh, there were times in which someone was literally walking past a warhead and realized there was smoke coming out of the warhead and there had been a short circuit. Now, in order to create a nuclear detonation, you have to just get electricity to the detonators. Um, and there were instances in which, you know, relatively trivial or mundane events could get electricity to those detonators. There was a risk of lightning. Uh, and we had missiles that were deployed outdoors that were struck by lightning. So, you know, this one report uh, mentioned 1,200 uh, weapons involved in accidents or incidents from 1950 to 1968. Some of them were trivial. Some of them were serious. And uh, the Pentagon official list of 32 is just a small fraction of the worrisome events with nuclear weapons that we experienced. Is it still true with more modern design of these weapons that, in fact, the safety measures, too many safety measures, make them less reliable, that it takes away from the ability of immediate use? You know, that was one of the military's concerns during the Cold War. And, and in some cases, it was a legitimate concern. Uh, they wanted their weapons to always work when they had to use them. And if you were a bomber pilot risking your life to enter Soviet airspace, encountering anti-aircraft fire and anti-aircraft missiles, uh, and maybe you know, never being able to return from your mission because nobody knew what it would be like to try to fly into the Soviet Union in the midst of a nuclear war. Uh, you didn't have to worry about if you drop your nuclear weapon, you didn't want to worry about it winding up being a dud 
because of some safety device. And there's no question that there was the possibility uh, of some safety devices making weapons less reliable. Uh, but certainly today, uh, with the safety devices, that thanks to Bob Purifoy and the engineers at Sandia that have been put on our weapons, I, I don't think they're the reliability of those weapons was diminished by the safety devices. And, um, you know, there is real importance of having nuclear weapons be safe during peacetime, particularly because I think that um, they're always in existence in peacetime, whereas a nuclear war has not happened in uh, the 68, uh, 68 years since the use of the first uh, atomic bomb, and hopefully a nuclear war will never happen. And so I'm in favor of erring on the safety uh, of these weapons, and perhaps a few of them won't work if we, God forbid, ever have to use them. Finally, talk about all of this in the context of something you mentioned before, which is this nuclear amnesia, that we have so many people in the highest levels of government today, from the White House and the Pentagon on down, who really did not grow up during the Cold War, who don't have the experience and some of the things we've been talking about, and the impact that you see that having on some of the decisions that affect these nuclear weapons. You know, I talk, I try to tell the reader how these weapons work. I try to tell the reader how we try to make them safe. I try to tell the reader, you know, about the plans for their use and where they were aimed. And in all that discussion, of all these very important issues, I think the greatest threat that we face today with our nuclear weapons is something incredibly simple, which is complacency, which is uh, that sort of historical amnesia that you mentioned. Uh, the last atmospheric test of a nuclear weapon that we did was in 1962. And so when you think about how many people are alive who've ever seen one detonate, and understand the extraordinary destructive power of them. You know, the youngest people are probably in their 70s now. Uh, one weapons designer who later became the head of Los Alamos said to me, what he'd love to do is assemble all the world leaders and make them watch the demonstration of the detonation of a hydrogen bomb, which he had seen firsthand, and really is a terrifying, terrifying sight. Um, so there is a, there's a, there, we've forgotten how destructive these weapons really are. And in the Air Force in particular, you know, it's, it's not considered a glamorous uh, job assignment to work on nuclear weapons anymore. During the Cold War, those who handled nuclear weapons, those who were responsible for nuclear weapons, they were the elite of the Air Force. And now it's seen as sort of a dead-end job. And there's been some real management problems just this summer two of our three strategic missile wings uh, were cited for serious safety violations. Uh, the Air Force's largest storage facility for nuclear weapons located uh, in New Mexico, the squadron managing it was decertified. That means that they were all relieved of their duty for safety violations. So we can argue about how many weapons do we need in the United States. Some will say 5,000. Some will say 500. Some will say none. But I think that what's beyond argument is if we're going to have nuclear weapons, we need to spare no expense in how we manage them. We need to make sure the people who are overseeing them are well-trained, highly motivated, well-compensated, 
because there's really no room for error with these weapons. And, and my book is intended, well, firstly, I hope it's a good read. I hope people find the story at the heart of it interesting and hope they find the other stories and the people in it interesting. But it's also an attempt to get people to think about these weapons and these issues again because the danger never went away. It's just our awareness of it has been diminished. Eric Schlosser, the book is Command and Control, Nuclear Weapons, the Damascus Accident, and the Illusion of Safety. Eric, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. Thanks for having me. We'll take a break. I'll be right back. 